2: Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 97. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So the theme of this week's Drabblecast is love and technology, the relationship between the two, the perks and pitfalls, and such. Match.com today, Blade Runner tomorrow, we'll see, only time will tell, well... Time and science fiction stories. So, first, we bring you a hundred word drabble story called Cryo Sleep by Jake Freevald. Jake is a software marketing exec by day, a father of seven by night, and editor of the webzine Flash Fiction Online in his copious spare time, which is essentially just his train ride to and from work and before 6 a.m. Flash Fiction Online is a really fantastic webzine, which I know most of our listeners would enjoy. Go check them out in your copious amounts of spare time. This story will also appear in Thaumatrope in March. Thirty-five of us left Earth for a distant star. We had plans, dreams of a fruitful colony growing under an unfamiliar sun. Our bodies only aged three years in cryosleep, except for Anne. Something had malfunctioned. It didn't matter what, even her bones were dry. I asked Captain Thordstadt for permission to say goodbye in private. He laid his hand on my shoulder, gave a sympathetic shake, and walked out with the crew. I climbed into the chamber with her and sealed it. I didn't care whether it worked or not. I hit the initiator switch and prayed for sleep. Our feature story this week is called Daydream Nation by Paul DeFilippo. Paul is the author of hundreds of short stories which have appeared in widely praised collections such as the Steampunk Trilogy, Ribofunk, Fractual Paisleys, Lost Pages, and The Little Doors. He's been a finalist for the Hugo, Nebula, BSFA, Philip K. Dick, Wired Magazine, and World Fantasy Awards. Paul is incredibly prolific. Check out his site at pauldefilippo.com. Daydream Nation is a postmodern fairy tale deriving its title from a Sonic Youth album, although its ambiance has little to do with that group's wild-eyed experimental music. It first appeared in the Aussie zine Cosmos and was the sole piece of fiction in that issue, amidst a host of well-done pop science articles. Paul says that he never got to appear in Omni, so this felt like a second chance to reach an audience attracted more by technology than dreams. The story is read to you mostly by voice talent and soon-to-be mom Heather Welliver. Heather's most recent voice work can be found in Paulette Jackson's Form Letter Rejection Theater at flrtpodcast.com in stories Socks Today, Thanks for the Memories, and Regarding the Barry Fitzpatrick's Navigator. She's also read stories for Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Transmission from Beyond, and she'll be reading the main role of Cyrus in PC Herring's podcast novel Cybrosis, which is in production now and will be coming out later this year. You'll find that linked in our show notes. So without further ado, Daydream Nation by Paul Filippo.
3: Alone again. Damn it. Siri Boisoleil carried a twist-tied plastic bag filled with random, trivial possessions Ken had left behind down the corridor to the fifth-floor garbage chute. A pair of smelly gym socks, several Chinese takeout cartons filled with remnants of that noxious sweet and sour chicken he adored, a key fob USB device big as a dime containing terabytes of possibly important but screw him files, and assorted other grimly quotidian reminders of another affair that had ended before it had really even begun. Unlatching the stained, scratched metal door, Siri launched the emotional ballast downward into dark basement oblivion and instantly felt a little better. She and Ken had been basically incompatible. Matters were as simple as that. She wasn't a bad person, and neither was Ken. It caused Siri a twinge to affirm this latter statement, but she immediately felt big-hearted for doing so. There were just two different types who had grown to grate on each other's nerves in daily proximity. Of course, she had been blinded to Ken's annoying features and habits for the longest time by his original seductive dreams presentation. God, how strongly that parasensorial burst had hit her some six months ago. She recalled those moments as if she were undergoing them again right now. She had been sitting at an outdoor cafe in Union Square at lunchtime, not far from where she worked. Siri was employed in New York's toy district as a sales rep for a line of kawaii Japanese designer vinyl toys. Her bestseller was a hedgehog named Hinoro, who resembled a fat, jagged pincushion with adorable neotenic facial features. She had just come off her year-long live-in affair with Mark and was still emotionally vulnerable, she realized now. Perhaps she had donned the bindi that signified her receptivity to eye dreams before her heart had fully healed. But she was so lonely after Mark left, and wanted to feel that she was back in the game right away. Her various girlfriends had counseled her to go slow, but she hadn't listened. A wave of thrilling emotions accompanied by a vivid slideshow of imagery caused the environs of Union Square to vanish instantly from Ciri's sensorium. Instead, flitting glimpses of a lush tropical beach and a handsome male companion flashed before her, accompanied by impressions of comfort, satiation, adventure, security, love, and erotic beguilement. Siri had been in the process of lifting her cup of espresso for a sip. The cup was only inches away from her lips when the eye Dream hit but the whole dream burst came and went in the tiny interval needed by her hand to close the gap between cup and lips. Although she had been stunned by the artful, alluring tenor of the dream burst, Ciri was too experienced a player to naively acknowledge her honest reaction. She imperturbably finished her sip of espresso, although, truthfully, her hand was shaking a bit, set her cup down calmly and slowly, and then, as if manifesting an idle impulse, took out her own I dreams caster, a recent Daewoo model with the programmable cosmetic skin. Was this particular I dream simply a random, typically urban intrusion on her voluntarily permeable privacy sphere, cast by some crude lout looking to impress his buddies? A kind of small mental frottage, Or was it a sincere attempt to win her attention and speak to her soul, as a prelude to a face-to-face encounter. If she was just being cruelly gamed, then whoever had sent the dream would not respond to Ciri's Bluetooth query, but if the sender was genuinely interested in her. Before Ciri sent her query, however, she looked around her in an inconspicuous fashion. An dream had an effective casting range of only ten feet or so. In that space, there were at least half a dozen attractive men of roughly Ciri's age, and not a single troll. And, oh, yes, at least that many good-looking women. But Ciri didn't think she gave off the L-word vibe and, in fact, had never been on the receiving end of an iDream from someone of her own gender in the two years she had been wearing the Bindi. So far, so good. Crossing her fingers in her mind, Ciri sent out her omnidirectional Bluetooth ID signal, itself limited to the same range as the iDream. Instantly, her national ID signifier would be downloaded into all the iDream casters in the immediate vicinity. Whoever had sent the iDream her way could now access certain basic public facts about her, as well as her photo. The sender would know that the chosen recipient of his dream was willing to meet. Siri could have responded by casting her own iDream, of course, but to whom? In a one-on-one situation where the sender's identity was obvious, Terry preferred to respond this way, in fact. A two-way, satisfactory swap of eye-dreams was the surest confirmation of mutual attraction. But in a situation like this one, Ciri could only hope that the man who had sent her such an appealing eye-dream would be as receptive to her fantasies as she was to his. A man was approaching her table now, smiling. Light brown hair, trim build, dressed sportily, dibbled chin, but wasn't to like. Ciri stood up and extended a hand, They shook.
2: Ken Clement, said the man. I hope you enjoyed that little interlude, Siri. I had a feeling you'd appreciate a few moments away from the city, your job and all.
3: I did, Ken. That was just... just perfect. Did you write that dream yourself?
2: Why, uh, yes, I did.
3: Maybe you'd like to discuss your scripting techniques over dinner tonight. Of course. And so her latest romance had begun. She should have realized it would end badly at the three-month mark, however, when she discovered that the iDream with which Ken had seduced her had been a Serrano. Scrolling through the iDreams download website, Siri had encountered the very same dream, offered as a $29.99 download by a professional, oneric designer named Gaiman Stud. Siri's face went hot. She felt cheap and easy her heart captured by off-the-shelf dreamware. She debated confronting Ken instantly with her discovery, but in the end she had kept silent. Surely the reciprocal attraction she and Ken felt for each other was unchanged, even if he hadn't compiled the winning iDream personally. Theirs was hardly the first romance that had begun with a little fib. yet gone on to happy longevity. The trash chute door slammed shut ending series reverie. She turned back down the corridor to her apartment. Once inside, she went directly to her nightstand. From a small, dusty box similar to a contact lens case, she took a fresh iDreams Bindi, a self-adhesive circlet displaying the iDreams logo, a stylized human head wreathed in fluffy clouds and displaying a third eye. This she applied to her forehead an inch or two above the bridge of her nose. Then Siri docked her long unused iDreams caster for charging and cabled it to her computer. She uploaded several of her favorite iDreams into the machine while its batteries were being replenished. Only then did she turn her attention to her closet in search of the perfect outfit. It was still a Saturday, after all, and she'd be damned if she stayed home all weepy and self-pitying when there was a city's worth of dreams to be shared. The club's lighting was so dim that Siri could hardly distinguish anyone's iDreams Bindi unless she were practically on top of the person. You couldn't just assume that anyone wearing a paste-on circle on their brow was open to your Dreamcast. With the popularity of iDreams, various reactionary Bindis had become fashionable. One of the most common showed a head wrapped in chains, while another displayed a head protected by a halo that one of these folks who almost seemed to court such mistaken encounters as excuses to vent their bile regarding I dreams, and you could find yourself on the wrong end of a civil lawsuit. So Siri had almost to climb into the lap of the brawny red-haired guy in the stool next to hers before she could be sure he was a dreamer too. When they had mutely acknowledged their kinship with a smile, the and country crunk music filling the club was amped up to eleven and made talking impossible. The guy nodded to Siri that she should go first, a good sign. Siri sent him the most recent iDream she had assembled in DreamShop. Many of its components derived from the standard toolkit, but she had incorporated an emotional track that she had reverse engineered from her own brain. The sequence revolved around a dance contest which she and her partner won with a flurry of outrageous moves, earning massive audience acclaim. The guy reacted positively enough, although without any signs of extreme enthusiasm. Then he sent Siri his I dream. Siri had a typically liberal attitude toward sex. She subscribed to Nerve and Fleshbot, she was open to kinky suggestions from her lovers, and she never missed an episode of Desperate Soprano Wives. But the raw, libidinous crudeness of the I dream that Big Red sent her shocked her like grabbing a live wire. That part involving the donkey-derived Chimera? Siri had hopped off her bar stool before she even realized she had commanded her body to move. She hastened to the opposite end of the club, her face burning. It took Siri several hours and a few drinks before she tried exchanging any more dreams. What she got back for her earnest efforts were dreams that ranged the spectrum from passive and wimpy to macho and domineering, all unimaginative and cliched. Happily, none of them were as loathsome as Big Red's, but that was the best that could be said for the offerings of the various males who cast their dreams Ciri's way. Not one of them featured an ounce of real romance. At least Ken Serrano had been a quality product. Maybe she had been a little too hasty in ending their affair. No, there was no utility in trying to revise the past. Dispirited and despairing, Ciri left the club around 1.30 a.m., Trudging through the cobbled streets of the meatpacking district, heading toward the nearest subway stop, Ciri wondered if Courtship by eye dreams was much of an improvement on the ancient methods. This supposedly deeper and more telling glimpse into the soul of a potential partner, designed to circumvent glibness and facile flattery, boasted unique new pitfalls. Ciri's train arrived before too long, and she got on the closest car. About ten people occupied the many available seats, scattered here and there. Siri dropped wearily into a random one, taking little notice of her fellow riders. When she finally glanced up from her self-absorption, she encountered the expectant gaze of a fellow dreamer seated just across the aisle. The guy was a little older than Siri. Wearing a leather jacket over a ripped T-shirt and paint-stained pants, he was a pudgy, unshaven bohemian of some sort, his face more homely than handsome. Hardly Siri's type. And of course, he just had to be sporting an iDreams bindi. God, she could only imagine what kind of puerile fantasy he'd send her way. Probably something involving hobbits. Having gotten Siri's attention, the guy waited patiently for her to offer him an iDream, but she looked deliberately away instead. She even considered peeling her bindi off to legally block any contact, but... Some last shred of hope forestalled that gesture. Out of the corner of one eye, Siri could see that the fellow was not dissuaded. In fact, he took out his phone and snapped her picture. Then, he caused his phone to project a glowing hologram display in the air. Siri recognized the icons of Dream Shop. Was a guy going to compose a spontaneous I dream right here? His flickering fingers signaled that he was. In short time the dream was fully compiled. Siri had never seen anyone craft a dream so fast. From phone to eye caster the file flowed. The fellow aimed his caster politely at Siri, waiting one final moment for her to register some objection. Then he's after. Siri and Boho guy were dancing on the moon, nearly weightless the pirouetted in long, graceful spirals beneath the stars, protected by a transparent, gaudy pleasure dome, the only two lovers in the whole universe. She felt immeasurable happiness and contentment. The aerial waltz seemed to go on forever, ending only when they sank into a pile of colorful cushions. The deceleration of the train pulling into the next station was hard to reconcile with the lingering imagery of the dream. Siri was breathless. Bohogai was smiling hopefully, but with an undercurrent of fatalism. Siri took out her own eye caster, intending to respond. But she realized that none of her stored dreams could match what she'd just experienced. So instead, she stood up, crossed the aisle, and took the seat beside Bohogai. Hi, she said. Do I know you?
2: that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. It's interesting, and a bit scary, to watch how human social behavior is affected by technology. Maybe it's just me, but conversations and interactions I have in places like bars and parties feel more like instant messenger conversations than they used to. With rampant multitasking and text messaging and emailing and Google searching on Blackberries and iPhones... Sure, people don't ask you for your age, sex, location yet when you ask if you can buy them a drink, but there is an air of immediacy and priority information gathering that trumps the dance of good old-fashioned cheesy flirting. Not that I really have much experience in the nightlife dating scene. I usually stay home and practice banjo on Friday nights. Yeah. Anyways, this story, as good science fiction always does, brought up some good food for thought. Let's do some story feedback from a couple weeks ago. Episode 92, The Horror Story by J. Allen Pierce, Synesthesia. This one freaked the hell out of a lot of people, but most people ate it up faster than zombie parents eat their children. Rish Outfield said, Dear God, Norm, this was hands down the scariest podcast I've ever listened to. Excellent reading, creepy music, and the child sounds were just nut-shrivelingly chilling. Wow. G.E. Lee said, Excellent story. Nice use of first-person perspective and under novel circumstances. Zombies, and I use the term loosely, keep coming up because they're such a great metaphor. The zombie is the essential id, observing no taboos and seeking nothing but the fulfillment of its sole desire. To eat people. That zombie may have been your best friend, or your grandma, or your daughter. But now, it's just id. And it'll totally eat your punk ass. There was some good discussion about if the story was indeed a zombie story at all, and what exactly makes a zombie story, or a zombie for that matter, Rich Mazur said, Aren't zombies by definition the walking, unthinking dead? Cannibals aren't zombies. Eating other human beings, whether ritualistic or because of mental illness or rabies-like infection, seems to be a different animal. Maybe the intention wasn't even to eat other humans, just to attack, maul, eat some of them, to spread the virus. I wonder how a rabid raccoon can attack a bear in pure rage, with no fear. Or maybe it is afraid the entire time. Maybe it is, Rich. Maybe it is. Anyways, that's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can project it to all your friends for free, just don't change it or sell it without permission. Wait a second. How does that business model work? Y'all are just giving away your product? Well, sure we are, because listeners like you support us with your donations, so we can pay our authors and production costs. So drop by our website, Drabblecast.org, and click either Donate Once or Subscribe for only 5 bucks a month. We'll be your bestest friends in the entire world. You can also, in your copious amounts of spare time, write a review about us on iTunes or podfeed.net or elsewhere. Blog about us or play our promo, which you can find in our Drabblecast MP3 warehouse off our main site. Oh, and in other news, we'll finally have a new story in our other podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, this week. B-Sides isn't a podcast featuring stories that didn't make the main show. It's stories that we bought and love, just thought would be more appropriate for a more segmented and peculiar class of listener. Find out if you're one of them. You can find the Drabblecast B-Sides page off our main site. See you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you not to miss the season finale of Desperate Soprano Wives this week. It's gonna be hot!